how do we make going and getting help a better option than staying in the midst of active addiction, staying chained down by all of that? And I believe that it's near impossible when you're impaired and in the throes of addiction to have that moment of clarity on your own where you're just going to wake up. That's such the exception where you wake up and say, hey, today I think I'm going to quit. And so if we can help people get to a place where their brain chemistry can clear, they can see the world a little better, a little more clearly, and then get some tools to know that there's another way to live. Here's how you deal with all that pain and anguish and existential crisis and angst underneath it all. You know, there's a better way. Let us show you that. And then I believe people can make a better decision about whether they want to change their life or not. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's episode is not only timely, but truly one of the most impactful and informative conversations that I have ever had. And the topic is one that is near and dear to my heart and the hearts of many. Why, you may ask? Because we are talking about addiction and why and how our nation is being held hostage by it. You think I'm kidding? A recent CDC... A recent CDC study stated that between May of 2019 and May of 2020, there were over 81,000 drug overdose deaths. My fear is that these numbers will continue to climb in the next coming year. It is also estimated that 1,500 kids per day will try taking prescription drugs for the first time to get high. If you are the parent, relative, friend, or spouse of somebody that could be struggling with addiction, you're probably asking yourself a lot of questions. What do I do? How will I know? How do I find a good rehab? What if they don't listen to me? What about pot? Do I just kick them out? How do I get them to be honest with me? Here is some good news. Today, we are going to answer these questions. And on the show today, I have Heather Hayes, one of the most highly respected and prominent authorities in the addiction field. She has over 30 years experience as an interventionist and has completed over 3,000 interventions. 95% of these have ended with the subject agreeing to go to treatment. You may recognize her from A&E's hit show Intervention, where she was a featured interventionist in 2018 and 2019, or from her appearances on Dr. Oz, CNN, and other media. Did I forget to mention that she's also a trained hostage negotiator? During our in-depth discussion, Hayes provides step-by-step instructions on how to know if someone is suffering from addiction and how to ask the right questions. We cover how to support someone in recovery, how to deal with the trauma, shame, and guilt of being a parent of an addicted child, and how to have conversations about drugs. We talk about boundaries, tough love, and enabling. She'll reveal what she is seeing on the front lines regarding what types of drugs are most popular, as well as the staggering statistics the country is facing. We also take a deep dive into cannabis and whether kids should be smoking it. We also talk about if cannabis is helpful for anxiety and whether or not it is a successful form of harm reduction. Finally, Hayes explains how to find the right treatment center and what she thinks is the solution to this massive problem we are facing. So let's get this conversation going. 
and welcome Heather Hayes to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Heather Hayes, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. I, I got to tell you, you came highly recommended to me through a colleague of yours and a good friend of mine to come on the show because not only of your incredible track record for over 30 years as an interventionist, but also your training as a hostage negotiator. So I guess I want to start off there is what's it like doing hostage negotiation and how has that helped you master your craft and get better at being an interventionist? And how has being an interventionist helped me be a better hostage negotiator? Absolutely. It was interesting to me because in 2001, I did my first intervention in 1986. So in 2001, one of the local members of the sheriff's department We ran into each other. We started up a conversation and they asked me about whether or not I'd be interested in joining the negotiations team as the psychological profiler. And that back around the turn of millennium, there was a trend where they were beginning to bring in mental health folks to work with negotiation teams. And as I sat in school, I got trained by the FBI. I got trained by some NYPD's finest, Dominic Masano and some of the others, because negotiations, the whole field of negotiations was started by NYPD as a response to watching situations where hostages were involved and law enforcement would go in tactical and lives were lost. And so the philosophy was isn't there a way to slow things down and help save lives? So the underlying principle in negotiations is that there's zero acceptable losses. And as I sat in school and I listened to the principles, I couldn't help but look at the parallel between hostage negotiations and addiction. The negotiations were talking about someone coming in, having power over others, terrorizing them. Once a terror attack happens, it changes everything in everyone's lives and how they do things. And I kept going back to, that's exactly what addiction does. It comes in, it hijacks our brains, hijacks the individual, hijacks the family system, it hijacks the communities. And when we've had addiction in our family and loss, particularly overdoses, death, it changes everything in a family's life and how they see the world in the lens. Even when their loved one gets into recovery, there's a lot of anxiety around, are they going to stay sober? Are they not? So in some ways, coming in and negotiating with someone who's taken someone hostage or who's barricaded themselves, your lives are definitely at stake, but we're talking about one person, the goal is to get them out and to get them safe and to get the others around them safe. With interventions and working with family systems that are hijacked by addiction or mental health issues, what we find is we find that this has happened generationally. There's so much more involved. It's so much more complex and complicated. Not that a, a hostage negotiation system situation isn't. And obviously that person who's taken someone hostage doesn't have great coping skills. And it's hard to put, it's important to stop and say, let's put this in, let's give it meaning. Like, why is this happening? What's the purpose? How do we come in and help work with them to help them you either save face or want to save their lives, or is it a terror attack where they don't care about life? And then it's harder to negotiate with addiction as our terrorists, you know, we're looking at impaired brain chemistry and dynamics that have been passed down generationally, often for generation after generation. 
Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. And I think one of the things that sticks out to me, and I've heard you talk about this several times, is in terrorist attacks and hostage situations, it's the most important person to keep alive is the victim. We don't want any lives lost. And then when it comes to the hostage situation we're facing right now with the addiction crisis, it's like so many lives are being lost every single day. You and I were chatting before, and I think you were saying that overdoses are up now. It's, I think, 220-something drug overdoses. Yeah, before the pandemic, we were looking at about 197 overdose deaths a day. And the most recent stats that have come out in the last nine months, it's up to 223 death by overdose a day. So it's tragic. And I think part of what's happened during the pandemic is that availability of Narcan, of services, treatment centers have gone out of business. They, our needle exchange programs haven't been able to get out and help meet people on the street. We haven't been able to really support. It's been more difficult. Therapists are harder to get in touch with. I was reading something yesterday about, I'm doing a talk. I'm flying to Texas today and I'm doing a talk on working with victims of human trafficking. And the average length of time for someone who's in the foster care system or the Medicaid system of being able to get in front of a psychiatrist is seven months. That's outrageous. So there's also a lack of resources available, particularly for those who aren't able to self-pay. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, these are some of the unfortunate long-term negative side effects of the isolation and of shutting down businesses and everything. Again, I'm not saying it was right or wrong. Like I, I don't want to talk about that. I'm just saying it's just a fact of what's going on right now. And people are struggling. Right. Overdoses are up. Uh, yeah. Other addictions are up. Suicide rates are higher. Alcohol sales are through the roof. And people are finding ways to cope with their trauma, cope with the pain, cope with the stress in ways that are available in the here and now, if they're not able to go and see a therapist or a psychiatrist in a week's time or a few weeks time, or even a month. And anxiety's up anxiety yeah. because you're also living in a world now where as we learn more, I think about even a year ago, we didn't know if you were going to walk out the door and take a breath and catch this horrible disease. And was it going to kill you right away? And that's a scary way to live. Yeah, it's horrible. And and I want to get into the weeds more on the statistics because I know I've heard you say several times you've rattled off these insane statistics that I didn't even know about like how many drugs as a US population we consume versus like our percentage of what we take up as far as the world and, and like people here. Right. And then talking about kids and prescription drugs, that was fascinating. But before we do that, so I want to let people know like you're an interventionist. So in my understanding, you pretty much bridge the gap between the person who is struggling with addiction and getting them into treatment, getting them help in a way that's conducive for them. And you've done, I think the last I heard, well over 3,000 interventions. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And so my background, I was studying psychology because I thought if I studied psychology, that might help me reel myself in and not drink and do so much cocaine. Um, I would say that the switch in majors eventually maybe, you know, helped. I ended up in rehab at 21. And after I sobered up and was able to see things more clearly, I knew more than anything that I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to particularly work with young people who struggled like I had when I was young. Because if you're getting into recovery at 21, that's a young person's story of active addiction. So I did my first intervention in 1986. And I also had a very full private practice where 
I was very hungry to learn how to work with children who'd been abused, with individuals with eating disorders, with depression, with trauma. And so I studied all of that, which I think is part of what comes into play when I say who I am today and what method do I use when I do interventions. But intervention definitely happens on the front end. I love working in the crisis moment. I love trying to come in and problem solve and think about how do we help this individual whose thinking is impaired by motivating the family system to really make a decision and a choice, often through some pressure from the family or from their work or other places. How do we make going and getting help a better option than staying in the midst of active addiction, staying chained down by all of that? And I believe that it's near impossible when you're impaired and in the throes of addiction to have that moment of clarity on your own where you're just going to wake up. That's such the exception where you wake up and say, hey, today I think I'm going to quit. And so if we can help people get to a place where their brain chemistry can clear, they can see the world a little better, a little more clearly, and then get some tools to know that there's another way to live. Here's how you deal with all that pain and anguish an existential crisis and angst underneath it all, you know, there's a better way. Let us show you that. And then I believe people can make a better decision about whether they want to change their life or not. So it's on the front end, but it's through that front end piece with some continued help and support for the family and the individual. Cause we all know if someone goes and gets help and then they leave and go right back to what they were doing it's the success rates very poor. So the family needs help. The whole family system, the individuals need a long-term health plan where they're supported through that process so that they can get to really about a year. And in a year, I think you have the ability to say, okay, my life's better. I think I'm going to do this. Yeah. And as you alluded to, you are on the front lines and you're seeing a lot Um, go on. And I'm sure that interventions have gone up during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic, just based on uh, the increased mental health issues, the increased amount of overdoses, everything that we were talking about a few minutes ago. What are you seeing now? Is it predominantly still fentanyl? Is it still heroin? Is it Coke? Is it pot? Is it social media? Like now, like what are you seeing now with substance use issues? With substance use, it's everything. What I am seeing that's newer in the last three to four years is really what I'd call poison drugs out there too. I know that in New York City, of the overdoses on cocaine, 40% of those who'd overdosed on cocaine, which means the cocaine had fentanyl in it, 40% would not meet the criteria for substance use disorder. So what that means is that we have individuals out there who are using for the first, second, third time, or they're social users, they're not addicted, and they're taking drugs that, again, have poison, fentanyl, and and they're dying from that. So the death rate is high, and there's not a lot of room for experimentation. We've seen teenagers who are using for the second and third time and have taken a fake Xanax or some cocaine and are overdosing and dying from it. So in the early 80s and 90s, when I first started, we would say your loved one has the potential of dying from this disease. And now we're saying, even when they experiment, it's much more serious. 
And so not to really come in and be an alarmist, but it's alarming. I don't want to obviously use scare tactics, but I want people to honestly understand what reality actually is today because it's a problem. And there's a lot of narratives out there. There's a lot of rhetoric. And I think just being able to hear from someone who's on the front lines of actually doing the work in there, who has no agenda other than to help save lives, like what's actually going on. So that if it's, there's a parent who's listening or there's somebody that has a loved one or somebody themselves, they can understand like the depths of this issue and then be able to get help or help someone if there's a need. So I want to pivot just before we get into the actual intervention process and helping somebody get from having an issue to getting treatment or getting help. Like how does somebody know if they're struggling with addiction or how can somebody tell if a loved one or one of their kids is having substance use issues? What are some signs and symptoms? Absolutely. One of the things that we talk about is repeated use despite negative consequences. Now, I think where it gets trickier is with adolescent young adult addiction because you don't get as much history and teenagers tend to use more in a single time than adults. So they binge. And that makes it more difficult. But what we do know is with adolescent young adults, the brain's not completely formed. So you're pouring drugs or alcohol on top of the immature, undeveloped brain. So when you start to see things, again, with your look, when you're looking at an adolescent young adult, you look for things like change in personality, drop in grades, lack of interest in the things they used to be interested in. Suddenly, again, there's a difference between teens who just don't want to shower and like to sleep where that's a change in, in the personality, or you're finding things, you're finding marijuana, you're finding straws, you're finding drugs, or they begin to get in trouble at school, or they get arrested. It's a big deal, because that's what teens, that's their life. And teenagers are very good at hiding things. So if they're beginning to get caught, usually you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I can't tell you how many parents have said to me, I only think little Billy has done drugs three times because I found it three times. And I'm saying it's probably you can multiply that by a lot more because yeah, where there's fire. That's right. That's like the tip of the iceberg with adults. You tend to see different differences too. At, at that point in time, you begin to see things like, you know, loss of job, legal consequences, relationships. I started my career working at a facility where we treated addicted physicians, pilots, attorneys. And so their careers were great for a lot of them. The places where their lives were in shambles were on the personal front. Their children didn't like being around them. They changed personalities. They lost many marriages from, from it. So by the time they did begin to get in trouble at work, we were looking at later stage addiction. So my advice to parents is don't sit back and try and be your own diagnostician. We have professionals out there, addictionologists, substance abuse experts that can come in and help determine whether or not your child is addicted or not. And we're living in a world now where they don't even have to be addicted if they are high risk into high risk behavior, where they're going to go and recklessly take a pill they buy off the street or a friend gives them. They're at risk of being handed fentanyl. So there's not a lot of room for mistake in this day and age, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, they get into denial and they say, it's not true. He couldn't be doing that. We've raised him so well. He we went to this school. We make this much money. We have great friends. 
Like he's too good of a kid. It would never happen. And then it happens. Not my kid. You hear that all the time. So let's walk. I do think the opiate epidemic has held up a mirror to the affluent society because now we're seeing deaths in our, in Beverly Hills. I'm not intervening in the ghetto. I'm intervening in Buckhead, in Manhattan, in Beverly Hills. I am, I'm intervening with families of means. And yeah. so it, it does happen. And it's always happened. It's never discriminated. Yeah. I went to private school. I had the best of upbringing. I rode horses as a teen competitively. I My grandfather was a United States Senator and I was absolutely as addicted gets. So it's never discriminated. But I think what's changed is that the ability to say it's not here in our schools or in our neighborhoods has been taken away by the unfortunate, tragic, horrific death toll. Yeah. And I think the stigma has been reduced a little bit in the sense of what we think an addict look, looks like, because I think in prior, we think it's the homeless person standing on the side of the road, like begging for money, drinking something or whatever it is. Yeah. But in reality, it's, it's everywhere. It's you our know, honor students. It's our pilots that flew the plane you know, wherever we were headed, it's your grandmother, you're right. And I do think that stigma gets in the way. I think that stigma is also another hostage taker that keeps us from really moving forward and saying, what do we need to do to help protect our children? This is 12. There's some stats that say that every day, 1,500 teens will take a prescription pill that they've gotten from someone's medicine cabinet or someone gave it to them at school to get high 1500 a day of our children. So it starts young. And so we've got to, by the time we come in junior high, start doing drug education, it's too late. Yeah. And we have to start early. And I don't think the dare don't do drugs tactic works. I think I'm sure maybe in, t- in some cases it does, but obviously for the majority, it hasn't, or we wouldn't be where we are today. And I think your trauma-informed approach, I think when you do your interventions is why you have a lot of success. 95% success rate is pretty good, right? In your industry of getting people into treatment. So what is it about the way you do things, the, the types of questions you ask or your intervention style that like, why do you think it's so successful other than is, is it the trauma approach? Is it your experience? Is it the delivery? What is it? I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. And I think one of the first things that I think is the most important is that I work as a team with a team. I have mm. a whole team with me. Like the families we work with are so complicated and so complex the trauma that people have been through, it's a lot for any one person. And so I always question anyone who says they can do it all by themselves. I think I'm as good as the team I have that are also help supporting me. But the other piece of it that I think is helpful and got me to where I am today is that I have spent lots of years and lots of energy educating myself, master's degree, clinical trainings, trying to learn everything I can to have tools in my toolbox, even when it comes to intervention, learning all three models that are used in intervention, and then going into a situation where I come from a place of compassion and understanding and not wanting to re-traumatize anyone, and yet seeing them in a position where they're traumatizing themselves every day and working with the whole family system 
to help the person agree to go and get that help. So it becomes more important. And some of that is helping the families look at, are you going to support health? Are you going to support their demise? I think families come in and do everything from a place of love, but they need help and education to understand that the things that normally naturally work to support our family members when they're in crisis often backfire when addiction or mental health is involved. If you have a family member who's struggling with a terminal illness or has got, for example, cancer, we all step in, we help pay the bills, walk the dog, water the plants. And then as they get better, they begin to come back in and take those responsibilities back over so they can go back into their life and flourish. With addiction, when we step in and do that, pay the bills. And you know, I know for myself, I learned I didn't really have any consequences. And every time I wrote a check and it was bounced, it, there'd be money in the account. So no money didn't really mean no money meant cry a little bit and then I'd get more money. And it fueled my addiction. So again, helping parents to look at what makes sense. Again, I think if tough love worked, we would have gotten everybody off drugs in the 70s. So it's not that you come in it's got to make sense. It's not come in from this punitive approach and say, kick your kid out of the house. And sometimes that really doesn't make sense. People have mental health issues. They can't sustain. They end up living on the streets then. That's not always the answer. But I think for me, it's being able to think outside the box, really be mindful that one approach doesn't fit all and to have enough tools in my toolbox that I can really try and pull out other types of ways to approach a situation. And if something's not working, it's up to me to figure that out. How do we help support? So are you against parents? Say like somebody's kid comes to them and they admit they're having substance abuse issues or the, the parent suspects that they're ha- the kid is having addiction issues. Do you, do you recommend parents refrain from asking questions and just getting on the phone with a professional right away? Or is there some kind of basic questions they can ask to help connect with them on an emotional level and bridge the gap and have their kid feel heard, loved, and supported? Absolutely. I think the first thing, if a kid comes to their parent and says, I'm struggling, I have, I think I have a problem. I think the first response is to say, I love you. And I can't imagine how much courage it took for you to come to me. Tell me about it. But then when it comes to the solution, yeah, let's get some help. We're going to reach out to someone. This isn't my area of expertise. Even if you work in the field, you can't do it for your own family. Even if you are me and a, and a family member comes, I say, let's go get some help. Yeah. So. If you're a parent, I think really reaching and asking for help, it's too dangerous. Your child may come to you and say, I've got this under control and I'm going to quit. And they might be able to, but they might not. And if it's might not, there's a lot at risk. And I do think by the time a child or someone comes around and says, I think I have a problem, there's generally a problem. And so after that happens, that dialogue and the, the parent helps the, the child feel understood, heard, loved, and knowing that it took a lot of bravery to come forth and admit that is the next step after saying, hey, I, I am not an expert in this. We need to get some help together. Is it the parent who typically calls somebody like you? Is it the kid? Like, how does that work? It's typically the parent who calls, looks around and says, let's get some help. Let's get an assessment. Let's have an evaluation. And then let's put in some protective measures to make sure that you're safe. 
Yeah. Because I think what happens, I think sometimes is they leave it up to the kid and the kid's already struggling and, and maybe they know they have a problem and, and they've admitted it, but maybe they're not a hundred percent committed sure. to making that change. So I think when the parent kind of steps in and it just says, Hey, I'm here just to help support you in whatever way I can, let's get an expert in here. Let's talk about it and see how we can move forward together. And I'm going to support you along the way. And, and so with that being said, technology too, that I think fits get the yeah. kid. For me, it's always been important that if we're going to talk about addiction and other issues as medical issues, that it fit that medical model. So I always check myself and go, would I do this with something else? Mm-hmm. And again, I can remember when I was a teenager and I stepped on a piece of glass and I sliced my foot open and I went to my parents and I, and they looked at it and they, and I said, do you think it needs stitches? And they said, yeah, I'm not sure if it needs stitches or not. It's a gash, but it's not that bad, but it's bad. You know what? We went to the emergency room and the professionals stitched it because my parents weren't the ones to say how good or bad it was. Again, if you have a tumor on your arm, you don't just go, my kid showed it to me and they, they think it's going to be okay. So we're not going to go get it checked out. Same thing with mental health and with addiction. It's as important. You're right. If you're a diabetic, you would go to the doctor and get insulin to help regulate your, your blood sugar. And, or if you broke your arm, you would go to the emergency room or the doctor to get an x-ray. If you tore your ACL, you get surgery and figure out how to rehab that. But I think with addiction, there's, it's so stigmatized. And I think one of the issues that parents run into is they're like, what did I do wrong? Like, why is this happening to our family? How could I have done things differently? They want some answers as to how they could have maybe raised their kids better, whatever it is. So what advice do you have for parents when they ask you those types of questions? Because I'm sure you get asked it a lot. I get asked a lot and I actually have thought a lot about what is it that makes it hard for parents versus diabetes or or other illnesses. And I think there is a bit of that. It's not my kid. I don't want it to be my kid. I think that we as professionals have not done as good of a job as we should have or could have. I hate should and could, but there it is around educating people about What is addiction? People will still say things like, oh, addictive personalities, or we've known for decades that addiction isn't caused by a personality. So we've not helped the the general population understand what it is, what it looks like, what the treatments are, and that's problematic. One in four children have got addiction somewhere in their family. So there's also a high, parents have to look at their own relationships with chemicals too. We live in a chemical culture where if you have a headache, take an extra strength. If you're going to have a good time, you have to have a beer in your hand. Uh. So I think that often clouds and gets in the way. And then I do agree with you that it's hard to understand, particularly if you start talking about gaming addiction, eating disorders, what really drug use is, what alcoholism looks like because of the stigma. And it's hard for parents to not feel like I must have done something wrong. It must be me. I must be a bad parent. And parents aren't. You know, I think the more that they can understand and learn about it, often they've raised, they may have four children and one of the four raised almost identically, just in a different place in the birth order is the one who's addicted. And a lot of it boils down to that brain chemistry. And once parents can begin to get support themselves, they'll also begin to learn that it's not their fault. Right. That they didn't cause it. We all make mistakes as parents too. So it's easy to step back and say, oh, 
maybe it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten divorced or I hadn't been so short or I hadn't worked so hard. So that feeds into it as well. So what do you recommend parents do? Say they, they come in or you come in, you do an intervention and their kids go off the treatment and they're sitting there pondering these questions. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? They have all this guilt and shame around the situation. Like, how do they craft that support system? What types of things do they do so they feel supported, they feel heard, and they can heal from the trauma that they endured as well? A couple of things. I think that healing often happens in connection. Mm -hmm. So I can't underestimate, I cannot express enough the importance of finding support groups of other parents who've gone through the same thing so that they can begin to learn, support each other. And you get those through groups like Families Anonymous, Naranon, Al-Anon. A lot of treatment centers will have parent support groups. There's power in education and understanding. So coming in and getting that education. A lot of interventionists or educational consultants that work with the families of teens and young adults will also do a lot of that education themselves, as well as while giving the support, recommend good books to read, like Never Enough and some of the others out there that are really helpful in parents understanding the dynamics and the neurobiology of addiction. Yeah. I I think it's important for people to take care of themselves because I think if you don't take care of yourself, you end up becoming codependent Mm -hmm. and you spend all of your energy trying to fix somebody else, whether it's a kid, whether it's a loved one who's struggling with addiction and you lose yourself in the process and you see it time and time again. So I cannot emphasize enough getting a support system, connecting with other people and raising your hand and just talking about what's going on and realizing that you're not alone. And would you rather be reaching out to that friend to tell them that your kid's struggling with addiction and going to rehab, or would you rather be making the phone call and letting them know that your kid died? Like, which do you want? And so I I think it's so important for people to get support when they're struggling with whatever it is. And staying on the topic of support, I want to go down the path of how a, a parent can support somebody, whether it's a child, whether it's a loved one, whoever it is, while throughout their recovery, while they're getting sober, say they go off the treatment and they get out and the the person's now trying to stay in recovery and maintain their sobriety, what can someone do to help support them along the way? I think the best thing a family member can do is to have their own program of recovery too, Mm -hmm. so that the whole family gets into healing. And that will help shift the dynamic of how they relate, how they interact. Again, letting a person be responsible for their own recovery, but also continuing to look at how I'm going to take care of myself. And again, with young adults who are financially dependent, there's always, you don't just give them a windfall of money. It's like putting a loaded gun in their hand, (laughs) but to look at how do I support you in a way where I'm supporting your health, not contributing to your demise and doing that while letting the professionals step in, you know, often people will go, to treatment, and then they'll go into some kind of monitoring program, or they'll go into a recovery residence afterwards, where their loved ones are getting the support that they need so that parents, for example, can step back and not have to do that and work on spending quality time and learning how to connect in a different way with their children. So what happens when you have addiction or mental illness in a family system is that we get stuck in this way of interacting that is often the rules become rigid and there's lots of either anger or trying to micromanage or hands off or you know, whatever it is, it's not working. So the way the family members interact, you almost have to deconstruct that 
to be able to reconstruct it in a healthier way. And that's what we want through recovery and through healing are for relationships to heal, to change and to begin to build back the trust. The trust is broken across the board. But when you have addiction, again, broken promises, lies, hiding, arrests. So trust is a huge issue for family members to repair. So if you're not having to step in and wonder, are you high? Are you not? Are you? Then you can work on just being a parent, being a sibling. So, yeah. So what do you advise people to do? I think we covered if a kid comes to you and admits that they have a problem, what do you advise somebody to do if they think that their parent, their kid is up to no good? while also trying to, to hold a safe space for them to feel like they can be honest with you? So it depends on the age of the child. And again, we're talking about a world where there's a lot of dangerous drugs out there. So I think if a parent is concerned about their loved one, they should go and, and meet with a professional, mm-hmm. have an evaluation. Drug tests, hair tests can be very revealing about what's really going on or whether a person's putting themselves in high-risk situations. Again, it's not just drugs in this right. age. There are also a lot of young adults, a lot of teenagers that have double lives on social media, where they're, one of the things that we know is that there are a lot of predators out there, and a lot of young teens are susceptible to, to being abused, pimped out, sending pictures of themselves, getting paid for that, meeting up with inappropriate, dangerous, high-risk behavior. There are lots of different ways. And gambling, there are a lot of ways that it plays out. And so if parents are suspect, one thing is, again, especially if your child is a teen underage, it's being able to have access and say, we want to see what's happening on social media. We want to keep you safe. We don't want to look and read everything you do, but we want to make sure that we keep you safe and protected. And talking to your children about that, which I think is hard. It's hard enough to talk to your children about sex, much less to talk to a 12-year-old about why they shouldn't send naked pictures out on social media or on their phones or on, on TikTok or Snapchat. Yeah, I think conversations are definitely challenging between the parent and kid, especially because I think there's a huge generational difference between parents these days and kids. I think a lot of parents now, social media didn't exist when they were kids. So it's a whole different realm, a whole different element. I didn't even know you can you can buy drugs now on like dating apps. I didn't even know that. I knew somebody that was doing that and I was like, wow, that's that's like a thing. I, I didn't know. Snapchat. Yes, yeah. Right. And so just helping people stay informed as to where kids can buy drugs and they can buy them online. Now they can buy them on Snapchat. They can buy them on dating apps. They can obviously buy them on the streets. They can buy them through friends. They delivered to the house. Yeah. And so we talked about a situation earlier that seemed easy where the kid says, I need help. The parent says, okay, let's call a professional. Then they come in, which we know most of the time doesn't happen. Most of the time, the situation, at least in my experience, I could be wrong is the kid or the addict, whoever we're talking about has a problem and they don't want to get help. So how does that change the situation? How does that change the dialogue between the parent and the child? And then what are the next steps from there? That they- so with the child over 18, really all the way through the lifespan from that point on, again, I think the best approach is if you come in, if you end up doing an intervention coming from that place of we love you, we care about you, here are all the things we love about you. Here's everything that's right about you. Mm-hmm. And here's what's paining us. 
And, and that's something a person can't argue with. I'm worried. I'm scared. At one point, you grew up wanting to go to college, and now you've failed out, and you've had three arrests. That breaks my heart. It feels right. like bigger than you has taken over. And for parents to look at, again, what are the, how do you support health versus contribute to demise? So if your child is in college, and they are failing out, and they're addicted to opiates and they've gotten on Suboxone and back onto, they've had a couple of overdoses and they have no treatment or care and they go back to college into that environment or back out into the area where that's at and they haven't gotten any help. Again, that's not supporting their health. That's putting them right back into that situation. So I think the parents can begin to take a look at what are they going to support what are they not? Family members as well. And not from a harsh, punitive way, but from I love you. And th this is a warrior's way of, of parenting or being your spouse. We love you enough to say that it may hurt to tell you no, but it'd be harmful if we didn't. Don't want to cause you harm. You know, under 18, parents can have their children go to treatment if that's appropriate without them consenting. And there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of mixed feelings and emotions for parents about doing that. But when you have a child who is on the threshold, that maybe they're psychotic, in and out of high-risk, dangerous situations, tearing up the home, their siblings are scared, they're bringing drugs into the home, they're not going to school. Again, sometimes that's the only way to stop that disruptive behavior. You know, what's important is that you work with a professional to go to a good place the child will, will more often than not be angry about going, but having them go in a way that's respectful, that is as untraumatizing as possible to stop that, to stop the behavior and stop the self-destruction. It, it seems to me like delivery is everything when talking to people who are in a vulnerable state. And if you come down hard on them with a tough love, like you're an addict, get out of my house. Don't come back until you've stopped using drugs. You're a piece of crap. I can't believe you're doing this to our family, like blah, blah, blah. Like all the things that we've heard through the years, that doesn't work. But I think on the flip side, what doesn't work either is hardcore enabling them, paying their bills, just giving them money, just writing them checks, doing all those things doesn't work either. No, and I think you can, like that right. it's get better. And if I just, they promised in this time, it'll be different. Yeah. That can be dangerous and deadly as well. So it's, it is important to find that balance. And it's important to really help the family, again, understand and educate them around, again, what's happening and the consequences. There are a lot of risky behaviors. So for example, we know today the marijuana is far more potent than the marijuana of the 70s or the 80s. Let's talk about that. I want to, I want to dive deep into that because that's something you and I see eye to eye on 150%. So who grew up smoking weed in the 70s and 80s, maybe they even smoke some weed now with their mature brain, they've made it. But when you start to have children, like there have been a lot of studies now that have been repeated and repeated that show that teens who abuse marijuana are 18, eight times more likely to develop a thought disorder in young adulthood. Now we're talking about all the mental health issues, thought disorder, we're talking about schizophrenia, talking about delusional disorder, people really not in touch with, with reality, and in a way that it can be a chronic illness that is sometimes the prognosis is not great. So now we have a responsibility as adults to protect our children's brain health. 
So if we're saying it's okay, it's legal, I did it, I'd rather you do it in my home, again, that's not protecting their brain health. And so over and over again, we're seeing much more psychosis. And you, even the marijuana is legal in, in a lot of states for recreational use. Teens still want to use it in a way, and now they're dabbing. They don't just do edibles. They want it even more potent, even more intense. So I've seen a lot of teens where once that pattern has started, they've had a psychotic break. It's a, very, it's a downward trajectory that they're on, and it's very hard to recover from. Yeah. And I think the other problem too is you don't meet too many, at least in my experience, heroin addicts that didn't start with smoking pot. My view on it being a gateway drug has changed over the years. Cause for me, I was using it to numb pain and and trauma. So there was some gateway pain and trauma that if I didn't have, I don't know if I would have started smoking. I have no idea, but because I was smoking to numb pain and calm my anxiety, calm my nerves, I can only get so high off of that before I had to move on to other things. And that's traditionally what happens. You go down this right. dark rabbit hole, starts with you know, smoking pot, then it, you move on to harder drugs and you move on to prescription pills. And then it can end up you know, leading to things like heroin, fentanyl. And then that's where the overdoses or poisoning, if, as you call it, can happen as well. Do you want to dive more into pot? Because it's a hot topic now. It's like you said, it's it's legalized for recreational use in, in many states. A lot of people are doing it. It's become like the new alcohol, if you will. It's been normalized in our society. Like, what advice do you have for parents who have say they, they know that their kids are smoking pot and they don't want to be the bad parent. They want to be the cool parent. Like maybe they're some of their friends' kids are smoking or doing edibles and they're getting away with it but they don't feel so comfortable with their kids doing it. It's hard because is it cool to let your child cause harm to themselves? You know, Mm. I mean, you really have to sit back and define cool. And it is hard when other parents are letting their children do it. The problem is that there are kids out there that can smoke pot at a young age and still be fine and never become addicted. And then there are those who don't, who can't. And, you have to ask yourself, is that the risk that you want to take that yours may not be able to? If you've got addiction anywhere in your family tree, your child is more high risk. But what we now know is that you don't even have to have it in your family tree because the brain chemistry, we don't know what screens do to our, you know, babies are at nine months old to have screens in front of them. So there's a lot of things that are happening to the brain these days that are so different. We also know that there's a lot of trauma in the world and there's a large correlation between trauma and pain and addiction. So my, my advice is anything you can do to delay your child from using mood altering chemicals until their brain is developed. That's why the drinking age is around 21. I mean, not why it's around 21. I'm sure political reasons why, of course, anything you can do to help delay that will protect their brain health down the road. There were a lot of studies done by O'Brien who showed substance use starting at 13, there was like a 90 some percent chance of them becoming addicted. If you could stop it, we saw a drop into the 40%. So again, when a child's brain is growing, you know, anything you can do to help keep that safe needs to happen. If you could talk a bit as a follow-up question to that about the dangers of smoking pot for things like anxiety, because you hear a lot of people do it because it it chills them out, it calms them down, it calms their nerves. 
And like you said, a few minutes ago, like there's some people that can do that and they won't fall further down the addiction spectrum. But unfortunately, if you're using a, an exterior substance to numb pain, it can set yourself up for disaster down the road. If you find harder things to numb the pain with. It's interesting because anxiety life is anxiety producing. There are a lot of things that make people anxiety is fear, stress. And so one of the questions I'd ask is, do we live in such a chemical culture where we have a low tolerance for stress and any kind of emotional pain? I think there's, it may not be that we have a low tolerance for it. This is me thinking out loud, but it may all, but it may also be that we're also primed through commercials, TV, what we read that if something is uncomfortable, there's a chemical fix for it. Like, here's what you're supposed to do. When I was in graduate school, we learned 40 to 50 non-chemical techniques to help people deal with anxiety. Everything from meditation, self-hypnosis, NLP techniques. And part of what happened was around the late 80s, managed care came in and started to decide that they weren't going to pay for 15 sessions with a therapist. They'd pay for a 15-minute med check to put someone on benzos to deal with their anxiety. So we've learned anxious, here's a pill, here's something to make it go away. So for some people, again, anytime you're having to mask pain and discomfort with a chemical, I think you're at risk of becoming dependent, of not being able to manage that pain without having that chemical there. What we know statistically, one in 10 is addicted. So there may be nine people out there who have anxiety and they can manage it with marijuana, just for example. But there's always that one in 10 who's got a different brain chemistry, a more sensitive brain chemistry that's not gonna be able to be, to flourish, that's you know not gonna be able to launch into adult life, that's gonna end up having difficulties in their relationships, difficulty providing for themselves or overall functioning is going to decline because of their addiction. So that's the part that I think is difficult. There are plenty of people out there that abuse alcohol or other drugs and never are addicted, but they start to get in trouble from it. Their life starts to deteriorate or they get in trouble and they reel it in or they stop. And then one in 10 may never use as much as the other. And yet they can't stop and continues that, that process to get multiple DUIs or they lose relationships because of their use or they're unable to really function. So if you have anxiety, there are things that you can do to also help go in and work on the core issue around the anxiety so that you're not using chemicals to, to try and manage it because that only works for so long. It takes more to manage, more to manage. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't know, and it started happening for me is marijuana can cause, you know, intense paranoia in some people. So if you're somebody who's already struggling with fear, anxiety, responding to uncertainties in life, it's going to make it worse. If you're one of those people that ends up experiencing paranoia from smoking it. And I think one of the other issues too, and I don't know how I feel about this, because obviously certainly the goal is I want to save lives and to keep people living. But then I see pot being used very frequently as a form of harm reduction. And I don't, I obviously had my, the goal was to keep people afloat and be able to help them manage their addiction. But do you think 
it continues to enable the addictive pattern when you use pot as a form of harm reduction, or do you think it's something positive? I've not seen marijuana as a form of harm reduction be successful. Mm. I've seen people use marijuana for a while and then ended up going back to their drug of choice. If we want to talk about harm reduction and MAT, then you look at what we have out there. You look at Vivitrol, you look at Suboxone, you look at the, again, using that in a responsible way. And in a responsible way, that means for a period of time, monitored by physician, making sure you're not adding other chemicals to it that are dangerous. I heard a doctor from Tennessee or maybe Kentucky talk. And he was, he was so, what he said, he was like, what in the hell is, mar-? these are his words. What in the hell is, is medical marijuana? Like how do you, any other medicine you have a certain number of micrograms or here's the dosage or here's what you take. It's like, how do you write a prescription and say, take three hits off of this <laughs> San Juan, sun dry marijuana, not right. Colombian, you know? So again, how do you even look at the medicine? And I do believe that there are medicinal uses, sure. but I think when you say go down to the head shop and buy it and manage your own anxiety, again, it's almost like practicing psychiatry without a license. I'm going to come in, I'm going to, you know, work with my brain chemistry. But again, I, I, and I've not seen that be successful as a harm reduction technique for persons with addiction. And and I think it's great that you- People aren't knocking on my door saying- the marijuana is working okay. And I'm an interventionist. People would rather go get root canals and call me. They call me because they're in crisis, because things have really gotten out of hand and have been out of hand and dangerous for years. But anyway, sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say is that I really respect what you said, because you're somebody who's gone on record multiple times saying pretty much having a zero tolerance policy as far as deaths, like no one deserves to die. And you're also saying, listen, like the harm reduction with pot just isn't working. And it seems from what I'm hearing you say, it's more contributing to the person's demise than getting them healthy because it's just, it's almost just continuing to relive that addictive behavior. So I got a couple more questions I want to ask you. The first is rehabs. We've walked people along the journey on what they can do if a loved one or or their kid is struggling with addiction and how to ask them the right questions, have the conversation, then get help. I think one of the other big questions that's asked a lot is how do you know which rehab is right for you? How do you know what form of treatment is right? And there's a film that came out called Body Brokers not too long ago that highlights some of the, the red flags in the treatment industry. And then there's obviously patient brokering has been around for a few years. You got people with insurance fraud. So it can be hard to trust which centers are in (laughs) the client's best interest. So in your experience, what are some things people can look for? Maybe there's some green flags with a treatment center and a few red flags to know what to stay away from. Also, patient brokering, the FBI has been prosecuting patient brokering under human trafficking. Wow. That's what it is. It's the buying and selling of patients, of human life, of human beings. It's like call centers where humans are literally auctioned because they call in and they're given the treatment recommendation of a place that paid the call center the most money that day, not the place that may necessarily be the best for their loved one. So part of, again, there needs to be federal regulation 
so that there's so that it's illegal across the board, state to state, so that money is not ex- given in exchange for putting a patient in treatment. If we had a child with leukemia and we found out that child was put into a hospital because that hospital paid the most to the physician that day, but it wasn't necessarily the best fit. Can you imagine the outrage and the media coverage that we'd have for that? So part of it, again, when I place someone in treatment, I take an extensive history of the person, get the best understanding and knowledge that I can, not only about the individual, but collaborative collateral information as well so that I'm able to come in as a clinician and look at, are there mental health issues? Is there trauma? Does this person need a gender specific program? Do they need a program for where they're at developmentally in their life, an older adult program, a young adult program, a teen program? There's a lot that goes into an appropriate placement. And with that includes knowing the quality of care of the facilities that are out there. So once you get on the internet, I think you're lost. Once you get on the internet, some of the worst places in the country have the best websites. Some of the best places in the country have got mediocre websites. And one size doesn't fit all. So anyone who is offering to send you an airline ticket or calls you repeatedly after you've called for an informational phone call, to try and get you to come. Anyone who approaches you because you're the member of a Facebook group for parents of addicted children and says, hey, let me help you out. Anyone who offers to uh, waive the copay of your insurance or help you to get insurance so that you can come. There are a lot of places and people out there that as addiction, as we worked really hard for the Parity Act, so that insurance would cover addiction like it does other health conditions, there are others who came in and preyed upon that. Again, if someone says, let me help recommend a a place, do they get money from the place? What are their credentials? Are they just like some person in recovery? Mm -hmm. Because look, if I got arrested, it doesn't make me an attorney, even though I maybe went through the legal process. I'm in recovery, (laughs) but I also have graduate degrees and trainings and so that I can do what I do. My recovery helps me to empathize. But what worked for me doesn't work for everybody. And what happened in my own personal recovery story is not part of what makes me a good clinician. So again, looking at who are you talking to? Is there an ethics board behind their name? A lot of people will come with this alphabet soup and I'm like, I don't even know what those are. And so really looking at do they have a state license? What are they, what's their education? If they're helping make a recommendation, can they give you other families to talk to that they've worked with? Other families that have gone through the treatment center, gone through treatment. Let me say, there are some excellent facilities to treat addiction and mental health issues. In fact, we know more about best practice, about what works. There's no reason why more people shouldn't be able to get help. We know a lot. But we also have a lot of bad players out there that make it difficult. And there are families that have pooled all their resources to help get their loved one into treatment. And they end up on the other side of the country. They end up getting kicked out of a place. There's stories after stories, like on the patient brokering documentary, the body brokers, 
that talk about lives lost because of patient brokering. So it's, you have to be careful, look for places that, you know, have been around for a while, will let you speak to others. And if they offer you something that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I think from what I'm hearing you say, like the credentials, their level of education, who's, who's working there, the types of services they offer is way more important than how bougie the place is. That's I, think right. that, I think swimming in a pool or getting in a hot tub or being on the beach isn't going to cure the addiction. I think doing the internal work, having high-class therapists. And there's some bougie places that do incredible care. Well, no, I'm, all I'm saying but is that you can't just rely it, on that. But if it sounds like, again, if you're being offered, there was a place that was offering free cigarettes, free rent. None of that is ethical. Right. You know, those are all red flags. Yeah. And I think people listening to this, they just needed to be where, do their research. And, but I think this is where having a professional like yourself come in to talk to can be very helpful because you vetted a lot of these treatment centers already and which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't. And they can kind of, you can point them in the right direction based on the level of care that's needed for the individual. And we work for the families. Right. One treatment center, not for not, we don't get a marketing quota for however many people we put in all of that. It gets complex and complicated. Unfortunately, the bad places and the awareness, the press, the awareness, the exposés needed to happen. The downside is that it, it colors the good places where mm. you have ethical individuals who are, you know, tirelessly working to do the right thing. Right. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that you get a few bad players in the game that can give a bad rap for everybody who's playing. So yeah. my, my last two questions are more pre- preventative. A lot of parents, they ask, and I'm sure they ask you, what can I do to make sure that my kid never does drugs? What can I do to make sure that my kid doesn't die? What can I do to make sure that my kid never does X, Y, or Z? Can, are, is anybody immune to this as a family? And if not, what can people do to make sure that they're putting that shield up and guarding their kids from this addiction crisis to the best of their ability. The stats show that more kids are going to try than not. Mm. So I think, again, if you come in and you say, we know you're never going to do this. If you are, you're going to get in trouble. It, It doesn't help. I think talking, talking at the dinner table at a young age about, again, how scary drugs are, why it's important to wait, Let's talk about our own family history. Let's be honest about how we use chemicals here in our family. Let's take a look at that. Are we able to celebrate without them or do we have to have them as a part of every celebration so that that gets linked together? But I think talking to our children about educating yourself more about what addiction is, what it looks like, and talking to children about, again, how their brains develop, how, again, how dangerous it can be to put drugs and alcohol on top of brain, the dangers of drugs out there with poisons in in them. And talking about this, not as a scare tactic, because kids often don't scare well. They sometimes will run towards the scare if you have that gene and you probably will, like I did, you know. But having that understanding, like I often wonder, and I don't know what the difference would be, but I wonder had I known that the big family secret was that I had a grandfather we didn't go visit because he was an alcoholic. And that made me more at risk that I also had ADD, that I also had rheumatic fever as a child. So I was sick and in bed and I had the stress of that. That made me higher risk. Would I have done things differently? I can't answer that. 
Right. But I can sit and wonder, I wonder if right. I would it have made a difference if we talked more about the reality of it all. And so that's what I think is just getting honest, getting real. There are lots of teaching moments out there. Then we'll watch cops with our stepkids and there's a million teaching moments in there. Again, every chance you can begin to talk about what does it look like? What is it not? Yeah. I think when you accept that your kids are likely to try something, it gets that out of the way. And I think the two approaches, again, it's like black and white in the approaches. Like one approach is you just don't talk about it. And the other approach is you either take the approach of coming down really hard and, and using the scare tactic, or then there's the other side too. I guess there's three approaches. The third is I'm just going to let them try it with me. I'm going to let them just get drunk when they're with me. I'm going to let them just get stoned when they're with me. And again, that doesn't work either. I think the approach, I wish you wouldn't. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to your brain health. Here's why. Mm. Here's a lot of drugs out there that have toxins in them. Here's why it's scary. And I also want you to talk with me about it. But I wish you wouldn't. I hope you don't. Our household's a drug-free household. So if you do, we're going to have talks about it. We may go for an evaluation. It's dangerous. We want to keep you safe and we want to keep your brain safe. Yeah, I feel like having boundaries is incredibly challenging, yet so important with parents and kids, like knowing when. So like, when do you know when it's the time to, I don't want to say cut the cord, but set that hard boundary where the kid, maybe he goes to rehab, comes back home, he or she comes back home and they keep slipping up, keep slipping up, keep slipping up. And eventually, where does that moment come where the parents like, I, there's nothing else I can do at this moment? I think it's an individual it has a lot to do with the family and the family system and the individual But even in what you said, the kid goes to rehab and they came back home. Like sometimes people go to rehab and they need to follow all the recommendations. Places where we really do see individuals getting in trouble is where the professionals are saying they need longer. We know teenagers need longer. We know their brain is developing, that they have less coping skills. They need a more skill building, developmentally appropriate model. So given that, We need them to, they need longer in care. But if a kid goes to treatment, comes back out and starts to not function well, relapses right away. And the important thing is that you then go back into the professionals and say, now what do we do? Or that you follow the recommendations. Yeah, no, you're right. I think having these guidelines are so important after somebody leaves treatment. And I think having the family on board, I'm sure the success rate is much higher when the entire family is on board. Everybody's a team. They're in the journey together. They're leaving the shame and the judgment in the dust and saying, okay, I know this is hard. This is going to be a challenge, but we're going to get through it together. And you can often bring families together. Like often it's that young adult or adolescent who leads the entire family into healing right? because of their pain, because you know, they're the ones who are brave enough or honest enough through their behavior, maybe not brave, but honest enough by saying, I'm not going to look at me. I'm in pain that has others looking again. More often than not, it's happened generationally. There's other mental health issues, addiction, communication issues, trauma, in the family that can all be addressed in the way the family can begin to heal. Everyone can be closer. We often have families where the family gets much closer, even if the person who's addicted doesn't get better. Wow. Yeah. I think it's so important to have everyone, like I said, on board, reducing the stigma 
and just saying, you know what, we're going to get through this again. Like we're going to get through this together and it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to get through it as a family. And so the last thing I want to ask you is I've heard you say that the biggest terrorist that's a threat right now to our society isn't anything like externally, so to speak, it's addiction in the United States right now. And we've, we've talked about the numbers and people who, who do drugs. And we've talked about the amount of overdoses that have occurred during the pandemic and, and how scary it is right now. So what do you think if you were in charge of the drug task force or the epidemic and you had the key to the car that was driving the direction it was going to help solve the problem, what changes would you make and why? I would absolutely make sure that we had more treatment available for people, more brick and mortar treatment facilities that we were able to not just not use the courts to punish people, but to step in with more treatment care. I would work on helping educate through town halls and more education. I would get education into the schools so that our kids were having active shooter drills, fire drills, tornado drills, and addiction drills. Again, and I would also work on cleaning up the ethics and the bad treatment that's out there. But we need more resources. We need more compassion. We also need to step up and really look at the problem that it is and take an approach where we're actively providing care, understanding. It's not okay that salmonella and jalapeno pepper gets more airtime and and quicker response than 223 of our loved ones dying a day from overdoses. It's just not okay. Again, education, really more resources, getting the ethics cleaned up in the field, in the industry, and beginning to really look at and how do we continue to talk about it and break the stigma? Ethics and education is, I think, sums it up, I guess, in a way, is educating on how to better treat people who are struggling with addiction, educating ourselves on the topic of addiction, educating as a family together on how addiction affects families and how it can affect people individually. And then, of course, ethics, obviously, making sure that these treatment centers and rehabs are held to a higher standard. And this has been amazing. I've learned so much from you. I can now see why you came so highly recommended to me. This was an absolute treat to be able to have such an in-depth conversation on a topic that is need- is so needed right now, as far as being talked about in the depths of what we did. So if people want to find out more about what you have going on, maybe they want to find, read your blog, find out more of your work. Maybe they want to contact you if, if they have somebody or they themselves are struggling, where can people get more information? Probably my website's the best way. So it's www.heatherhayes.com and Hayes is H-A-Y-E-S. So yeah, on the website, I put out a blog a week. It goes out on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. But I also have each week's, blog added to the website too. So yeah. Cool. And I encourage, I, yeah, I encourage you, I encourage people who are listening to this to go and, and watch her talk on, on substance abuse. that's on her website that she delivered. It's about 45 minutes or so. Uh, nation taken hostage. Yes. Yeah. Nation taken hostage. That's what it was called. It was incredible. And I have and a I, book on the way out called uh, our youth taken hostage. So I'll keep you in the know about when that's coming out too. Yes. Please keep myself and everyone else in the know. And for those listening, there was a lot of information delivered here on drugs, the epidemic, treatment, family dynamics, uh, recovery, 
the brain, you name it. And I encourage you to really take some notes on what you've learned from this. And if you have someone who's struggling, whether it's in your family, a friend or a loved one, um, just take some action because now you know a little bit on what you can do to help someone who's in need or if it's yourself that, and if you think you're struggling with addiction, please just don't be afraid to reach out, ask for help. It's okay. Just know that you're not alone. And it starts with you. No one's going to change you. No one's going to fix you. It's got to be up to you to make that decision. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging, but, but so is staying in that same place. Suffering can be incredibly challenging and painful as well. So don't be afraid to reach out for help. And I once again wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.